The Locomotive Engineer, Part 2 of Careers of Danger and Daring. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Careers of Danger and Daring by Cleveland Moffat. The Locomotive Engineer, Part 2. We pick up some engine lore and hear about the death of Giddings. The next day, with comfortable rocking chairs to sit in and a row of hotel windows before us, Bullard and I found time for engine chat, and I was well content. First I asked him about putting his head out of the cab window there at Greg's Hill and elsewhere. Was it to see better? said I. No, said Bullard. It was to hear better and to smell better. Hear what? Smell what? Hear the noises of the engine. If any little thing was working wrong, I'd hear it. If there was anywhere on the bearings, I'd hear it. Why, if a mouse squeaked somewhere inside of 590, I guess I'd hear it. Then he went on to explain that the ordinary roar of the engine, which drowned everything for me, was to him an unimportant background of sound that made little impression, and left his ears free for other sounds. I get so accustomed to listening to an engine, he added, that often up home, talking with my wife and child, I find myself trying to hear sounds from the roundhouse, and after a run, I talk to people as if they were deaf. You spoke about smelling better. That's right. I can smell a hot box in a minute, or oil burning. All engineers can. Why, there was... This led to the story of poor Giddings, killed on 590 three years before, through this very necessity of putting his head out of the cab window. Giddings had Bullard's place, and was one of the most trusted men in the Burlington employ. You saw last night, said Bullard, how the boiler in 590 shuts off the engineer from the fireman, and probably you noticed those posts along the road that hold the telltale strings. They're to warn crews on freight car tops when it is time to duck for bridges. Well, Giddings was coming along one night between Bigsville and Gladstone. That's about ten miles before you get to the Mississippi. He was driving her fast to make up time, sixty miles an hour easy, and he put his head out to hear and to smell the way I've explained it. There must have been a post set too near the track and anyway, 590's cab is extra wide. So the first thing he knew, and he didn't know that, his head was knocked clean off, or as good as that, and there was 590, her throttle wide open, tearing along, with a fireman stoking for all he was worth, and a dead engineer hanging out the window. So they ran for eight miles, and Billy Maine, he was firing, never suspected anything wrong for of course he couldn't see, until they struck the Mississippi Bridge at full speed. You remember crossing the bridge just before we pulled in here. It's 2,200 feet long, and we always give a long whistle before we get to it, and then slow down. That's the law, he said, smiling. And besides, there's a draw to look out for. When he heard no whistle this time, Billy Maine jumped around quick to where Giddings was, and then he saw he had a corpse for a partner. Another question I asked was about stopping a train at great speed for an emergency. 
how quickly could they do it? I've stopped, said Bullard, in nine hundred and fifty feet, pulling five cars that were making about sixty-two miles an hour. I don't know what I could do with this new train, only three cars, and going eighty or ninety miles an hour. That's a hard proposition. Would you reverse her? No, sir. All engineers who know their business will agree on that. I'd shut the throttle off and put the brakes on full, but I wouldn't reverse her. If I did, the wheels would lock in a second, and the whole business would skate ahead as if you'd put her on ice. Then we talked about the nerve it takes to run an engine, and how a man can lose his nerve. It's like a lion tamer who wakes up one morning and finds that he's afraid. Then his time has come to quit taming lions, for the beasts will know it if he doesn't, and kill him. There are men who can stand these high-speed runs for ten years, but few go beyond that term, or past the forty-five-year point. Slow-going passenger trains will do for them after that. Others break down after five years. Many engineers, skilled men too, would rather throw up their jobs than take the run Bullard makes. Not that they feel the danger to be so much greater in pushing the speed up to seventy, eighty, or ninety miles an hour, but they simply cannot stand the strain of doing the thing. This doubling up is what breaks my heart, said Bullard. Since they've put on their new schedule, I have to divide five-ninety with another fellow. John Kelly takes her on the fast run east while I wait here and rest, and so I've lost my sweetheart, and I don't feel near as much interest in her as I did. You see, she ain't mine any more, and between you and me, he added confidentially, I don't think 590 likes it much herself. You see, engines are a good deal like girls after all. The next night, in workman's garb again, I made my way to a gloomy roundhouse, ready for the run to Omaha. I was to ride the second relay as far as Creston on locomotive 1201 with Jake Myers in the cab, so I had been informed. Being hours ahead of time, I saw something of roundhouse life. First, I followed a gaunt, black-faced Swede with stubby beard through his duties as locomotive hostler, saw him take the tired engines in hand as they came in one after another from hard runs, and care for them as stabler ostlers care for horses. There were fires to be dropped in the clinker pit, coal and wood to be loaded in from the chutes, water tanks to be filled, sandboxes looked after, and finally there was the hitching fast of the weary monsters in empty stalls, whither they were led from the lumbering turntable with the last head of steam left over dead fire boxes and now spoke the Swede. Dem big passenger engines can wery easy climb over dem blocks and go through the brick wall. And he pointed to a great semicircle of cold engine noses ranged along not two feet from the roundhouse wall. Later on, in the dimly lighted locker room, I listened to roundhouse men swapping yarns about accidents, and to threats of a fireman touching a certain yardmaster set apart by general consent for a licking. Finally, an Irishman came in, James Byron, and for all his good-natured face, he seemed in ill humor. It turned out that he had just received a hurry order to take 1201 out in Myers's place. Jake is sick, 
he said, and they've sent for me, but I'm sick too, was in bed with the grip, just took ten grains of quinine. Say, I ain't any more fit to run an engine than I am to run a Sunday school. Then he began pulling on his overalls, while the others laughed at him, told him he was scared of the fast run, and said good-bye with mock seriousness. But Byron showed himself a good soldier, and soon was working over 1201 with a will, inspecting every inch of her, torch in hand, and he assured me he would take her through all right, grip or no grip. And take her through he did. At 1.16 a.m., my old friend, Locomotive 590, brought the flyer up from Chicago, six minutes ahead of the schedule. Kelly had done himself proud this time, and six minutes later, on time to the minute, we drew out behind 1201, with Byron handling her and seventy tons of mail following after. Our fireman was named Bellamy. He wore isinglass goggles against the heat, and in his way was a humorist, as I discovered presently, when he came close to me, we were running at a sixty-mile gate, and, grinning like a Dante demon, remarked slowly, Say, if we go in the ditch, will you come along? The first feature of this run was some trouble with the feed pipe from the tank, which brought us to a sudden standstill in the open night with a great hissing of steam. What is it? I asked of Bellamy, while Byron, grumbling maledictions, hammered under the truck. Check valve stuck. Water can't get to the boiler. How did he know it? Water gauge. What if he hadn't noticed it? Bellamy smiled in half contempt. Say, if he hadn't noticed it for fifteen minutes, we'd have been sailing over them trees about this time, in pieces. She'd have bust her boiler. Five minutes lost here, and we were off again, running presently into thick fog, then into rain, and finally into a snowstorm. Never shall I forget the illusion, due to our great speed, that the flakes were rushing at us horizontally, shooting upward in sharp curves over the engine's headlight. And as we swept on, the shadow of 1201 advanced beside us on the stretch of white snow, as smoothly and silently as the tail of an eclipse. The engine itself was a noisy, hurrying affair, but the engine's shadow was as calm and quiet as a cloud. And I recall that the swiftness of our rush this night caused in me neither fear nor any particular emotion, although this was practically the same experience that had stirred me so the night before on 590, and I realized that riding on a swift locomotive may become a matter of course like other strange things. End of The Locomotive Engineer Part 2